John chapter 2, and soon we will be reading verses 13 through 22. God is simple. That's what we tend to, to speak of God. We, we would theologically call him simple, and that is that you, you can't remove any part of who he is without the whole of him unraveling. And so there's a way of talking about God and that he is unified, he's one. If he is not eternal, then he is not immutable. And if you take away his immutability, then he is not always ever present. And so there's all kinds of reasons why God is simple, he is unified. But he is also, we would assume in a different ways, complex. Our God is merciful and just, He upholds justice and he must be just, but he is also merciful to allow sinful people to not experience the devastation that their sin rightfully deserves. We have a God who is gracious and a God who is holy. We think about that even today as we come before him in worship. We have a God who who desires for us to treat him as holy and we have a God who calls us to be as we are before him. So we can, we can come before God and we can sing songs like, just as I am, without one plea. And knowing that that is true, that God graciously calls us into his presence without us needing to clean ourselves up before we can do so. God does not require of us a holiness before he calls us, before he allows us to come into his presence. We can be unholy and be called to him because he is gracious It is God who is able and willing to cleanse us. He doesn't require for us to cleanse ourselves. And yet, at the same time, we realize that he is holy. And so as we come before him and as we grow in the Lord, it is inappropriate then for us to stay in our sin and to come before him. So we can say, just as I am, but we can't continually say, just as I am. There's a sense in which he calls us just as we are, but he expects for us to grow in holiness and righteousness. We are like Isaiah in that famous passage in Isaiah 6, a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And we need to be atoned for so that we might stand before God. Psalm 15, 1 and 2. David writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell upon your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. There is a purity and a holiness that we must have if we are to approach God. And so we have this paradox that we are called as sinners to come before God. We are called graciously to do that. We can only come before God based upon his grace. And yet at the same time, we are called upon to treat him as holy. In many places that we can see this, one of my favorites is a juxtaposition in the book of Samuel. In the beginning of Samuel, in Samuel 3, the young man Samuel is ministering under Eli, Eli who is blind. There were not many visions in those days. The lamp of God had almost gone out. And what that means is that the teaching that Eli was supposed to be doing was not happening. And when we first are introduced to Samuel as a young man in Samuel chapter 3, he is sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. We read this in verse 3 of Chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. That holy of holies was something that one man was to enter one time a year only after cleansing himself lest he die. 
And Samuel, the young man who has no idea what he is doing, has strolled in there, has laid down and has taken a nap next to the ark of God. And God not only doesn't destroy him in that very second, but he is actually calling him. And so, so out of it, so unknowing is the the young man Samuel, that he doesn't even know it's God calling to him. He keeps going to Eli. And Eli's so blind that it takes him a while to realize that it's God calling Samuel. Juxtapose that with what happens in 2 Samuel. The ark of God has now been taken out, and David is bringing it back. He's bringing it back to be with his people in Jerusalem. They make a, a new cart to carry this on, and he, they, they tie oxen to it. We read this in 2 Samuel 6. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving this new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cassonets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. He spares Samuel. Yet Uzzah, to to save the ark from falling, simply braces it. And God says, no, you can't do that. And he destroys him. These these are the, the paradox of what it means to come before God. God is incredibly gracious and kind, and yet he is holy and demands reverence from us. As one preacher put it, Uzzah's problem was simply thinking that his hand was less dirty than the dirt that was going to catch it. It wasn't. God is both gracious and holy. We need to treat him as both, as he calls us freely to worship him, and yet he demands that we come before him in a specific way. We are not to simply come before him in any way we choose. His graciousness invites us and it draws us to him, but he demands certain things from us. Let us go to John chapter 2 as we begin reading in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple? And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It is is taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of our God. So today... As we open up and we read this word of our God, let us consider our attitudes and desires as we come to worship God first to tell us that our focus is on God. We need to think through our focus on God. 
The purpose of this Passover festival was a remembrance of what God had done. God had called his people out of Egypt, and while they had suffered in Egypt, he finally shows up 400 years after Joseph went down there, having good fortune when he first went, but after some years, there was a Pharaoh who rose up who did not know Joseph. And so the oppression of God's people, he brought upon plagues to get them to be driven out, the last plague being the plague of the firstborn, that he was going to take the firstborn of everything born in Israel. But there was a way out. There was a way that the people of Israel could escape this fate by painting the blood on the doorposts and the lentils, and so God would pass over them. Every year after that, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem and celebrate this, and this happened to be one of the founding festivals in Israelite life. And so therefore, it was incredibly well attended. It is a festival that means much to the book of John, as we find Jesus going to Jerusalem many times to celebrate Passover. This particular trip to Jerusalem, he walks into the temple complex, which is massive and large. If you've ever seen diagrams of it, it's probably larger than you're even considering now. It was huge, this complex. And he notices people in the courtyard, and they are selling animals. They're selling sheep and oxen, and they're selling pigeons, and there are money changers there. Now, John doesn't go about explaining this because... For most people, I, I would assume they understood what was going on and the reason why, but we probably need a little bit of hints as to why it is that these things are in the place of the temple. And it's pretty easy. Because the festival was so large, because Passover was so important to Jews, Jews made every effort they could to get to Jerusalem. That means coming from incredibly long distances. That means from people who are in other places in the Roman Empire, not just Jerusalem. The town of Jerusalem would explode in its population during these days. And so, because of that, it was necessary to have people to exchange money with. The temple and the temple tax, which they took from people not unwillingly given by the people, was there to support the ministry of the temple. It could only be given in a certain type of coinage. But most people didn't have that type of coinage. So, of course, they needed to turn in their coins for other right coins. It's not much different than if you went to France or you went to England. You couldn't pay for things with the dollar. You could try. They wouldn't accept it. But they will take Visa. But nevertheless, they're not going to take your paper money or your coins. And so, therefore, because they're not going to accept those, you have to get them exchanged. This is exactly what was going on with the temple tax. The money changers were there to exchange the money for them. And what's more, if you're traveling a good distance in those days, you don't want to be doing it with animals. You don't want to be doing it with your kids, let alone with animals. And so, if you were traveling even from Galilee, it's 90 miles by foot. Sheep are difficult to live with. They're more difficult to travel with. And getting your sheep all the way from Galilee down to the temple is incredibly difficult. And so to make life easier on people, people set up shop. And they said, well, you just bring money. We will sell you the animals and you may go in and you may perform your sacrifice. Something about this was deeply unsettling to Jesus. Something about what was happening here was incredibly upsetting to him. So he takes the time to make a whip, and he drives out the cattle and the oxen. He likely has to drive out the people as well when he does this. We find that it is, is probably, I think, mostly for the cattle, the oxen, and the sheep, because when it comes to the people who are selling pigeons who are doing exactly what the other people are doing, he tells them to go out. He doesn't drive them out with a whip, presumably because you can't drive out pigeons who are in cages with whips. It doesn't work that way. 
So the question that, that comes before us is, what is the actual problem here? And there are two things that people say most often that is the problem that Jesus is addressing here. The first is the money changers themselves. They look and they see these money changers and they think, oh, what's actually going on here are these opportunist sort of capitalists who are trying to make a quick dollar off of people who are needy and there's graft going on and they're lining their pockets and they're getting rich off of poor people who are traveling from a very good distance. This is not necessarily wrong when we consider a passage like Luke's. So in Luke 19, 45 and 46, we have Luke's account of the cleansing of the temple. And there Luke writes, And he entered the temple, Jesus entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. We read that and we think, What's going on here is nothing but extortion. You need money? Well, you've come to the right place. They are the payday loan people of the first century. Okay? And Jesus sees something wrong with that. But there is quite a difference between Luke's account and the account we have in John. You will notice that what Jesus says as for the reasons why he's driving people out in the Gospel of John has to do with changing the house of the Father into a mercantile arena. That's his problem. He says nothing about robbers. And he says nothing about the house of prayer. Secondly, the timing of this is all different. In the, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this cleansing comes at the very end of Jesus' ministry, and in John, it comes at the beginning. Now, there's a couple of ways that scholars handle this, and there's a couple of ways that you can handle it. You can believe that there are two cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry, one at the end of his ministry. They're the same one presented in two different ways. It actually doesn't matter. What matters is what John is doing. I happen to think that there's probably two different ones, but it doesn't actually matter. John says that's not the reason. He mentions nothing about robbers. And actually, he doesn't seem to have any problem with what's going on here. Jesus overturns their tables and sends them out. But he doesn't say, stop selling. But he doesn't say, stop changing money. He says, you can't do it here. The second issue is the issue of the Gentiles. Now, neither in Luke Mark or Matthew, nor in the Gospel of John, are we really told where in the temple complex this is going on. But if you've ever seen the temple complex or a drawing of it or read much on this, there's almost no doubt that this is going on in the court of the Gentiles, which is the largest court on the outside. It's the furthest away. There are other courts, the court of the um, Israelites, and then there's the court of the women. And so there are other like arenas that certain people can go in. But this particular arena is meant for Gentiles to come into the house of God to be able to pray. They can't get close closer than this, but they can come here. And so there is a way of reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke when he says a den of robbers. That word robbers has another connotation, which is more like a nationalistic zealotry. And so what he's saying is you have, you have for your own purposes, because all you care about are Jews, brought in these animals for Jews to buy so that the Gentiles have no place where they can come and pray in silence. And so you are taking what should be a house of prayer and you are making it into a nationalistic zealotry parade. But again, we have nothing about that here. It would be very odd for Jesus to be concerned about Gentiles at this point in John's gospel. The issue, to put it as simply as we can from the gospel of John, is that there are good things that can happen in almost every arena in life. I think that Jesus has no problem here with the selling of sheep and cattle. 
He has no problem with the money changers. He has a problem with where they're doing it. God cares about what happens in his house. It's not that this is improper. It's not that this is wrong. It's not even that this is bad. Jesus could think that this is great. It's a good service. It's a kindness being done to people who are traveling from a long way. But it's not to be done here. While God cares about what happens in his house there, we are just as likely to think that God cares about what happens in his house here. It's not enough for us to think about whether these things we want to do are good or not. So as we gather together to worship God, the question is not, is what we're doing good? Because it's clear, I think, that you can do good things in the wrong place and at the wrong time and have it be wrong. So when we gather together, the way in which we preach the word, the way in which we sing, the way in which we pray, are they appropriate to what is actually going on? Are they appropriate to a gathering of people within the house of God? God's house is to be special and set apart. So when we gather for worship, when the bricks of the temple, you and I, gather together and God comes to be with us, we have to have God special and set apart. And we have to make sure that what we are bringing in here is not just good, but it is appropriate and fitting for it. So corporately, many people might think that the way we handle worship in here is somewhat old-fashioned or traditional. We don't have many, although some of the songs we sing are new, you don't find them much on Christian radio. We have reasons for that. We have reasons for having a liturgy that's handed to you that we work on week in and week out. We have a reason why it's set up the way it's done. There's a reason why we we read scripture, we pray scripture, we sing scripture, we preach scripture, we respond to scripture. There's a reason why we do all of that. There's a reason why we adore the Father. We have gospel assurance from the Son and we pray in the Spirit for the pastoral needs, not only of our community, but of all the communities. We do this because we are focused on God. We're not focused on individual people. There's a reason why we don't have special music, where we have people who are very talented and skilled, which we have in our congregation, stand up here and perform those individual things. I don't think that that's wrong. I do think that it is not befitting a corporate gathering of worship for the people of God. We are to focus not on those who play the music, but on whom the music is played for. Now, it doesn't mean that they aren't deserving of recognition. They are, but they're not deserving of recognition here. And it's not, please understand, not just because we don't have the technology to do the fancy shots that they do in larger corporate gatherings, okay? I'm sure that we could have a camera with a close-up of Jeff, and so everyone could see him playing the drums. And it's not even that we don't want to show Jeff playing the drums, although I'm guessing he probably wouldn't want us to show him playing the drums. Nevertheless, it's not because of that. We play the music that we play so that we can sing corporately together because we think that's what the Bible calls us to do. A lot of this comes down to entertainment. Our worship services are not here to entertain you. If you leave bored, I I don't actually care that much. Now I do if the sermon is boring because I haven't done my job well. That I care about. I care about you being bored because our church wasn't singing well. But if you are bored because I didn't tell you more jokes, I, I honestly don't care about that. I, I remember hearing 
uh, it must have been 2007, 2008. We were in Tennessee at the time. I was delivering pizzas. And I remember continually hearing about this guy on the West Coast who was was planting churches. He was very missional in everything that he was doing. And people talked about him being a great preacher. Just great preacher. You got to hear this. So I, I downloaded one of his sermons and I listened to it. And they were right. He, he, he was captivating. And he, he, he understood well what he was saying. And he knew the type of people that he was, he was preaching to. And he was a good preacher for the position that he was placed in. But I had to turn him off because after 15 minutes, it was nothing but stand-up. He hadn't gotten to the word of God yet. And it was nothing but joke after joke after joke after joke. Now, I will admit to you, 15 minutes of stand-up, week in and week out, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And I couldn't do it, and you don't want me to do it. My jokes aren't funny as they stand. So 15 minutes of them wouldn't do you any good. But we can't think that that is what we are to do when we gather here. Charles, or not, not well, C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, told this anecdote now, I need to explain to you, I'm going to read exactly what he wrote, so I need to explain, I could have just changed it, but I wanted to read what he wrote, what a halpert is. A halpert is one of those Viking-like axes, so the long-handled axes with a great big curved edge, okay? Now, why in England in the 19th century somebody was walking around with this, I do not know, but nevertheless, the streets of London were very dangerous back in the day, so this was the, it wasn't quite a concealed carry, I'm sure it was a great big thing, so anyways... This is his anecdote. A man with a halbert was attacked by a nobleman's dog, and, of course, in defending himself, he killed the animal. The nobleman was very angry and asked the man how he dared to kill the dog. And the man replied that if he had not killed it, the dog would have bitten him and tore him in pieces. Well, said the nobleman, you should not have struck it on the head with a halbert. Why did you not hit it with the handle? My lord, he answered the nobleman, so I would have done if he had tried to bite me with its tail. Now, I thought that was way funnier than you did. <laughs> it, it must have been Spurgeon's presentation of it, because he says he told it on several occasions. So I'm going to do it again in the future and see if it grows over time. But the point is, is this. He turns around and he says, he says, why do I speak the way I speak? Why am I hard with people? Why, why do I use rough language? Why, why do I jolt people with illustrations the way that I do. And he says, because sin is not trying to bite you with its tail. In other words, Spurgeon beautifully used a joke to talk about why he's serious. Listen, we are serious because this is serious. It's not a time to simply entertain ourselves. It's not a time that we can leave simply feeling happy and rejoicing in spirit in a way that doesn't have any sort of gravity to it. Entertainment can be disastrous in worship services because the grace of God is given to you, but it has been purchased with a great cost. And to think that we are to leave simply laughing at that. Joyful, yes, with solemnity, but never, never joyful in lightness and in airiness individually, not just corporately, what we do when we come together and not being entertained and coming and actively participating in worship individually, this is for you as well. Realize what's going on for these people. They're traveling a great distance. 
And they're coming into the temple. And they knew that they, they needed their, cha- their coins changed. They knew that they needed to buy animals. And what better place to do that than in the temple? And Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen, I know that you've traveled a good distance. And I know that this is an easy place for you to do it. But it's not here. You want to do it on the Mount of Olives? Go do it on the Mount of Olives. But you can't do it here. You have made a great sacrifice. And I'm happy for the sacrifice. But you've got to sacrifice a little more. A little more. Friends, I know that all of you have made a sacrifice to be here. And I know many of you right now are thinking, this is no sacrifice. And and I'm thinking of somebody in particular. It's no sacrifice. They've been here 20-some years, and they would tell me it's never a sacrifice for me to show up and worship at the house of God. And I, I understand what you mean by that, but it's still a sacrifice. You're still sacrificing other things. It's rainy outside and ugly. Bed sounds fantastic, right? It's comfortable. You can sleep. You can read, you can eat cereal in bed. It's magnificent, okay? So all of that, you are sacrificing that to be here. You're sacrificing all the NFL pregame that you could possibly want or the I Love Lucy reruns or whatever you want to watch on TV. You're sacrificing all of it. There is sacrifice going on because you are choosing to be here instead of choosing to be elsewhere. So there is sacrifice going on here. But friend, Don't think that because you've made that sacrifice that that's all that God wants. You cannot just drag yourself in here, plop yourself down, and consider that that is enough sacrifice to bring you into the very presence of God. Be active and alert when listening to the sermon. Sing. Sing. You guys, you are wonderful at singing. Excel still more in it. Sing louder. sing, Sing brighter. Sing with your heart and passion more. And if you think, I don't have a good voice, Be grateful that everyone's going to sing louder and everyone's going to sing with more compassion so that you are drowned out. For those of you with good voices, sing louder to drown out the people with bad voices. If everybody lifts, rising tide lifts all boats. So we can all do a better job with this. We can all do a better job with this. To be focused on what God has called us to be focused on. To be focused on the word of God. To become prepared. To not be sleepy because we stayed up too late the night before. To have our hearts and minds prepared for worship, not just prepared for the preaching of the word, but from everything we do when we set foot in this house. From the, from the prayer of adoration, from reading scripture, from all of it, to be prepared to meet God. That is a sacrifice. Let us do this as well. We are called here to worship. You do not worship by watching other people worship. You do not hunt simply by going out and sitting out on a blind and being cold on October and November mornings. You hunt by pulling the trigger. You do not play baseball or football or any other sport by watching it on your TV at home. You play by going out and doing it. And worship is exactly the same. You do not worship because you come here and you sit in a pew and you fall asleep or you sit in a pew and you think about the pot roast or you sit in the pew and you think about the game that's on later today. You worship by sitting there and focus your attention on God. The disciples remembered afterwards, remembered him driving out and they thought later. They said, ah, that's right, that's right. In Psalm 69, David writes, zeal for your house has consumed me. In that psalm, David writes as though the waters have come up to his neck. He's, he's about to drown. His footing is now on, on 
clay and mud, and he, he knows in just a moment he is going to be completely submerged, and he's crying out. He, he's cried out so much to God to help him that his voice has gone hoarse, and all of his enemies are surrounding him, and all of his enemies want him to die there, cheering on his death. And he says, the reason why? Zeal for your house. Zeal for God's name and his house brought him pain and required all of him. It would do the same for Jesus. It is zeal for God's house that brought Jesus into conflict with the authorities. It is zeal for God's house and his will and his purpose that brought Jesus finally into conflict to the point of giving his life. It is zeal for God's house that will do the same for us. But that is a sacrifice that we are called upon to make. Be zealous for our gathering together as the temple of God. And secondly, let us also consider our foundation in Christ. Our foundation in Christ. The Jews approached him after he did this and asked him, honestly, a good and right question. Jesus had no standing at this point in time. No one really knew of him. According to John's gospel, John the Baptist had pointed him out. He had done a miracle way up in Galilee, but he was probably fairly unknown to the people in Jerusalem. And somebody just shows up, 30-year-old man who is young at this point in time and simply drives people out. They have every right to come to him and say, who do you think you are? So they ask him, listen, if you are so authoritative and you know what should and shouldn't happen in the house of God, give us a sign. There's something odd about that particular question. Give us a sign. So Jesus says, okay, let's play. Every time somebody asks him for authority, asks him for a sign of authority, Jesus comes up with the most brilliant answer. And this is a brilliant answer on two different levels. The real, physical, practical, absolutely literal level. He says, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. You want a sign, I will give you the greatest of signs. Tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now they laugh at this. They say, why would you? It took us 46 years. You're going to rebuild it in three days. And you want Jesus to go, that's the point, man. It's not a sign if I can rebuild it in 150 It's a sign if I can rebuild it in three. Well, of course, this is a brilliant play because there's no way they're calling this bluff. For Jesus, there's no way that they're going to knock down the temple for him to rebuild it in three days because they don't believe that he can do it. So they've asked him for a sign, but they refuse to accept the sign that he gives. But John, more importantly, turns around and says, no, what Jesus was actually talking about was his body. And so they were unwilling to tear down the temple, but they were willing to tear down the true temple. Jesus was indeed the temple of God. He is the very presence of God in the world, and he is the way that people come to meet God. It's important to understand what he's talking about here as he is prophesying that he will raise after dying from the dead. But there's something more important here about how Jesus speaks on this that is important. After all, Resurrections were not unheard of. Jesus performed multiple resurrections. The Old Testament knows of resurrections. Resurrections didn't signify anything particularly outstanding. Now, there was clearly a miracle. But we don't have Lazarus coming out of the tomb, dropping the cloths off of his face and his hands, and Thomas shouting, My Lord and my God! What is it about Jesus' resurrection that is so starkly different? It is, yes, that he predicted that it would all happen. Certainly that's part of it. 
But what kind of language is he using here? Listen to how he speaks. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. If he's speaking about his own death, that is a far different resurrection than the resurrection that happens to Lazarus, the resurrection that happens to one of the centurion's kids, the resurrection that happens to the widow's son in the Old Testament. It's a far different resurrection. Jesus is saying, if you kill me, I will still raise myself. God might choose in any moment, and he will choose at a particular moment, to raise anybody he would like from the dead. And God, who can create anything out of nothing, could simply speak and reconstitute the entire world's population this moment, not by pulling them out of the dirt, but by simply putting them on the earth. He can do whatever he would like. If he can make something out of nothing, then he can make you out of stardust. It doesn't matter what he uses. It doesn't have to have anything. God can resurrect anyone he does and anyone he wants, but it is a special kind of person who can resurrect themselves. What man can do that? What man swallowed up by death has so much life in him that he can raise himself from the dead? Being God, Jesus demonstrates that he is God by doing this. Not just by being raised, which, by the way, John uses the passive form here as well. That God, the Father, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus uses the active form here, meaning Jesus is also the person who raised Jesus from the dead. Being God, Jesus demonstrates that he's God by raising himself from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. What kind of man is so filled with life that he can resurrect himself? What kind of power is that? What kind of might? He is life incarnate. The only reason... Jesus dies is because he wills himself to die. Because he lays down his own life. He would never have to die if he didn't willingly submit to it. But after willingly submit to it, he still has so much life in himself that he can come back to life whenever he so chooses. So when Jesus tells us how we are to worship, when Jesus says this is inappropriate in the house of God, we listen because he is God. And he's demonstrated that by raising himself from the grave. So if we are to see God's holiness and purity by which we approach him here, here we also see his graciousness because Jesus did die. But he died for us, not just because of us, but for us, to give us life and breath and all things for perpetuity, for eternity. He is risen, dying to our sins, rose to give us that same kind of life, and he pours it freely out upon those who believe. So Jesus tells us how to worship. He says, worship in spirit and truth. We know that from John 4. But in Ephesians 5, Jesus, speaking through the Apostle Paul says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another. Notice, not just singing individually, not listening to other people sing individually, but addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to sing. So what do we do when we gather? 
we sing. We sing. We stand and sing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We make melody in our hearts before God. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. That's quite the introduction. I charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Well, seems like something we should do. So we preach the word. It's fairly simple. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, these are all meant, maybe except of the preaching bit, but this is meant to be aspect of our daily lives. There's no doubt, but how much more important are they when we gather together that we do this? So we pray, we preach the word, we sing. These are the aspects that Christ has led us to do this. He is also the foundation of our worship because he is the only one who gives us access to truly worship God rightly. We only can come before the presence of the Father because Jesus has died and rose again. And dying and having risen again and called us in faith, our belief in him has given us the right to be children of God and therefore we can enter into his presence and call upon him and worship him rightly, in spirit and in truth. So while we gather, we focus specifically on worshiping Jesus focusing our attention on him, in his word, seeking to do his will. So, we read the word, we pray the word, we sing the word, we preach the word, we respond to the word. The word is Jesus. Jesus has come and he has given us the access to God that we might worship him rightly and truthfully, in sincerity, with gravity, and with joy. This calls for us to sacrifice. So we sacrifice ourselves so that we might experience greater joy than simply the frivolity of the world. Have no doubt that it is a gracious call that calls you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, that call, while gracious and free, and while the access that you have to be a disciple of God is is free for you, it also costs you everything. Luke 14, 26 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Earlier in the book of Luke, Luke 9, 57 through 62, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He has called upon you, if you follow him, if you will worship him, if you will know him, to sacrifice for him. You have done that simply by being here this morning. Continue to do that. Sacrifice so that you may know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Jesus freely does for us what we cannot do so that we in turn must give all of our lives back to Jesus in worship 
so that he might receive glory and honor from our lives. Friends, this is what Christ has done for us. He has died and he has been resurrected so that we might come before the presence of God. This is why, in John Piper's words, we proclaim him to all people. Missions exist because worship doesn't. People don't rightly worship God, and so we explain to them the right way to worship God. The whole of life is worship. When we go to heaven, the whole of heaven will be worship. Practice it well now so that you will be well-seasoned for the day of the Lord. Let that sacrifice, giving all of yourself each time you come in here to God, drive the desire you have to know God. If you were to sacrifice everything, you ought, you ought to want much out of that. And God will give it to you, and more than you could ever dream, but sacrifice your life for him. Christ died for your sins, and he has risen Indeed, he has risen, so let us worship him with everything that we have. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind to us. But you are also holy and righteous. You will not stand by as people give you weak, watered-down worship. We pray, Father, that we will never do that, either purposefully or accidentally. We pray, Father, more than just for how we at Crossway handle ourselves corporately, we pray individually. And it's not just for people who aren't preaching. There is a way in which we can come to this moment lackluster. We can come with our hearts divided in the world. We can come, as James says, as a man who is tossed by the waves and the winds of this world, divided in our minds. Let that not be said of us. Let us be wholly devoted to you in all of our ways and forms. Let us be wholly devoted to you in having our attention fixed upon you as the glory of God is demonstrated to us. This means and calls for our excellence even before we come in here, whether it is in preparing for sermons, whether it is preparing for music, whether it is preparing the prayers that we offer to you, whether it is simply in our preparation for coming into worship. Father, I pray that you give us hearts to long to do this well. And you give us eyes to see where we fail. That we might repent of that failure before you. Entrusting ourselves to you. And following you through everything. That you might receive glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.